What would you do if you only had one week left to live? That's a question that has been the premise of daydreams and discussions and movies and plenty of second-rate jokes over the years. Here's a different question. What would you do if everyone else only had one week left to live? That was the reality that Noah found himself in in Genesis chapter 7. After perhaps a hundred years of building, the time had come when God would do what he had promised so many years before. The moment of destruction and the moment of deliverance was coming upon the world. Genesis 7 verse 1. And the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah was not simply a religious man. He had a relationship with God. We saw this last time. He walked with God. We don't know how much direct communication he had with the Lord during this ark building project. God had spoken to him. That's clear. But it's altogether possible that Noah had not heard from God for many years. Even so, no matter how many times he heard from the Lord, Noah acted on the word that he received. And we also need to act on the word that we have received. When does God speak to us? Some of these Bible characters, especially in the Old Testament, would go decades between interactions with the Lord, and they didn't have the convenience of a Bible in their hand. Now, we are not subject to that kind of drought We have the completed, inspired, reliable Word of God, which is available to us anytime, day or night. And in this wonderful technological age, it's available to us freely. What a wonderful thing. Christians also have the Holy Spirit living in our hearts as a helper and to give us wisdom and to give us guidance in all of the things that we need to live the Christian life. We have a spiritual family that we're connected to, the local church by whom we are encouraged and supported and sharpened as we walk with the Lord. The Lord speaks sometimes through fellow believers as they interact with us. If we haven't heard from the Lord in a while as individuals, it isn't because the supply is depleted. It isn't because the supply chain has broken down. We saw, saw that last year, right, with all the COVID and everything, where the, every now and then the supply chain of this would break down. And where, where's all of the Clorox wipes? Yeah, they don't exist no more. Where's this kind of meat? Yeah, it doesn't exist anymore. And there'd be these weird periods of weeks where we couldn't get our hands on certain things, right? The supply chain broke down and there was nothing we could do about it. But if you haven't heard from God in a while, it isn't because the supply is depleted. It's because we have not visited the storehouses of God's provision. After all, the Bible says, seek him and you will find him. And it says that he gives to all generously and ungrudgingly. And so he's on record as being available. He's given his word to be readily um, accessible to all of us, to be reliable and depended upon. And so he's not withholding from us. Now here, God said, it's time for your family to be delivered from the coming wrath against sin. We've seen it before, but it's worth repeating. Noah wasn't saved because he earned a place on the ark. He didn't win a contest. No, the book of Hebrews states emphatically that it was his righteousness was because of his faith. Because he had faith in God, God made him righteous. And that's the same work that God does in a life today when a person believes in him. You don't buy your salvation. You don't earn your salvation. God's not indebted to you to give you salvation because you've done something for him. It is a free gift of God's grace. You don't earn it. You're not worth it. You don't merit it. 
and yet the Lord wants to give it to you and to me as well. Now, Noah was the only righteous person in the entire world and his family by extension as well. They were literally the only believers on planet Earth. Maybe you are the only Christian in your school or in your class or in your job or even in your extended family. Take courage. God is still true. God is still working. And he delights in using you to make an eternal difference right where you are. And so it can seem really difficult and insurmountable. Man, I go to the office. I go to my work site. I go to my college class. I go to my high school. I go to the family Thanksgiving. And I'm the only one. That's okay. You're enough for God to use. You're, you are the one smooth stone that can bring down the giant, right? And, and Noah was the only righteous man on planet Earth. So he knows how you feel. And the Lord still used him to make such a great difference. And the Lord wants to use you as well in the places that he has scattered you. Now, all this time, Noah had not been given a date for when the flood would come. Of course, God the Father knew the date in heaven, but Noah had been given this job to build the ark, but he had never been given a date of, hey, there's the X on the calendar. You always see this in movies, for in, in school movies, they always do this, the, the, the class final. It's on this date and you have to study, 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 right? Noah didn't have a date. It must have been such a strange thing knowing that this ark absolutely must be completed. There was some point where it had to be done. It had to be ready to float. It had to be watertight. But you didn't know when that was. At the same time, you know, if you've undertaken any kind of project of any significant size, whether it's planning a large event or building or rebuilding some sort of machine, any sort of large project, you know that there's always more you could do to fine tune things, to make th sure things are just so another coat of pitch on the hull of the ship, another calculation concerning the water or the grain. Noah's efforts all this time would have to be urgent, but continual. And the same is true for us as Christians. There is also for us a judgment coming. I mean, we talked about this last time. Are we in the days of Noah? We can't be sure. It sure feels like it is based off of what we see in the world around us. And the Lord says, hey, as it is in the days of Noah, so it will be in the coming of the son of man. And we know that there is a global judgment coming to this world because of sin. We know that the church is going to avoid it because of the rapture. We are saved from the wrath to come, but there's coming a time where judgment's gonna fall on the earth and God wants to save people. And so we understand that, that there's a judgment coming and that we've been enlisted to be a part of God's rescue work. And so like Noah, we want our work for the Lord in this rescue operation to be urgent and continual, all the more as we see the day approaching, the New Testament says. Verse two, you are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Bible scholars disagree over whether it was seven of certain animals or seven pairs of those animals. It seems that pairs is more fitting as it says male and female, which would require an even number. And so I hate to ruin your uh, little children's Bible that says two and seven, but it, it seems like it was two and 14. It's taken for granted 
that Noah knew the difference between clean and unclean animals. What were they? Are they the same as the clean and unclean animals in the law of Moses? We don't know. But what this reveals is that these early believers that we've been reading about, Noah and his predecessors, they had more information given to them by God than the text records for us, right? So they, they had some sort of understanding about sacrificing to God and about clean animals and unclean animals, about this sort of ceremonial approach to God, uh, which would define God's work before in the dispensations before the cross. Now, this clean, unclean thing gives us a good reminder. God is the one who makes decisions about truth. He's the one who establishes what is true and what is not true. He decided the list for Noah. Noah didn't go out and say, well, I've decided that this animal is clean and this animal is unclean. It doesn't mean that you and I can't eat bacon. The New Testament deals with that very clearly. But it reminds us that God establishes truths and he makes delineations and he sets boundaries and he has ideas about what is in and what is out. And we find ourselves in a time and a culture where everyone wants to debate every truth, every definition, every category and meaning. Everyone wants to say, well, you tell your truth and I have my truth and they can be mutually exclusive, but they're both true, but they're not both true. There is objective truth. There is absolute truth. And it is defined by God and laid out by God. And then it is explained to us in the word of God. And it does not change. And so when culture comes along or, uh, you know, uh, humanity comes along and says, hey, we've realized, we all got together and scratched our heads and realized that this thing that used to be true is no longer true. The Bible defines for us what is true. And we need to go to the Bible and rightly divide it so that we can know what God has said. What God has said is clean and unclean. What God has said is right and what is wrong. What God has said is good and what is evil. And it is a characteristic of sinful humanity in the last days that human beings will be calling good evil and evil good. And it just sure seems like that's happening in every single corner of our society today. Now let's take a moment to realize the awesome responsibility that God was giving Noah here. Take these animals in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. If the Lord had given me this task, I might answer back with, sure, this sounds great. Could we maybe go with 20 pairs instead of one pair? I feel like that would be great. You know, when you do, uh, I remember we did some of the, the, the fake wood flooring in our house and you get like 15% overage, right? Because you're gonna ruin a bunch of the pieces. I need wiggle room for stuff like this because what happens if like one of those pigs gets like smushed on the way out? We got a pig problem now. Gonna have a bunch of extinctions. But it's interesting, this, re this restriction, I mean, God whittles it all the way down to one pair of many of these animals, just one. I, that is whittled all the way down to the farthest level, right? A male and his female. And this restriction reminds us that God is able to do a very lot with a very little. And frequently, God really likes to do things with a very little. He likes to whittle things down to its smallest, to its littlest, to its weakest. We talk about this that in the New Testament, we're told that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is something he likes to do. It shows how great he is and how magnificent he is and how much glory he has. 
And so the Lord likes to do this kind of stuff. Whether it's two little piglets coming out of the ark to repopulate all the swine on the earth, or two widow's mites or mustard seed faith, God likes to use a very little to do a very lot. But here's the question then turned in on ourselves. Do we trust the Lord when it seems like the way he's planned for us isn't enough? It isn't sufficient. Will we believe that, okay, God can do what he says he wants to do even when the pile over here seems so small or so insufficient? For example, do we trust God enough to give him some of our finances like he asked us to do? Or do we answer back, Lord, I need a bigger pile before I do that for you. If you gave me a bigger pile, then I could give you what you're asking for. But I, I, I'm worried that if I give to you of this small pile, then we're going to have trouble. Or do we trust God enough to stand against the pressure of the culture around us, even when everyone else is going along? Do we trust God enough to be the director of where we live, who we marry, how we live, what we do? What we see is that God has plans and methods and commands and that they can be trusted. But to trust them is going to demand a level of trust. If the, if the Lord had said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to repopulate these animals, but I'm going to give you like 200 pairs of every animal. The ark's going to be 10 times as big as it is. And I mean, it's just going to be a slam dunk. You're going to hardly have to do anything. Well, then what kind of, how much trust do you really need? Or you still need some trust, but man, the Lord loves to bring us into a position where he says, do you actually trust me? I want one pair of animals. And if another pig tries to sneak on here, you kick that thing off. He's going down in the water. Verse four, seven days from now, I will make it rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing I have made, I will wipe off the face of the earth. Noah was literally in the last days of his world. It must have been a very full week. Most of you, when going on a long trip, I'm sure go through a lot of details while packing and preparing. There's lists and there's checking and double checking and then going back through. And then as you get in the car, it's like, okay, did we forget anything? I'm sure Noah was very busy on those days. In fact, I know that he was, verse five, and Noah did everything that the Lord commanded him. Noah is a living, breathing, walking illustration of saving faith. We talk about saving faith in the Bible. Noah is the walking example of what saving faith is. And saving faith is obedient to God. John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Hebrews 5, 9 says, Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. You know, we see these polls every now and then about how many people, quote, believe in God in America. Gallup has put the number as high as 87% of Americans a few years ago. But are 87% of Americans obeying God, obeying God's word, going God's way, allowing God to be king of their lives? I think it's pretty obvious that they're not. Maybe you've heard someone called a rhino. It stands for a Republican in name only. It's been an especially popular slur in the past few years. I was surprised to find out it dates all the way back to the 1920s. Nothing new under the sun. It's meant to describe someone who takes a label but doesn't adhere to certain positions, right? We should be more worried about being disciples in name only. Do we obey? Obedience has real world consequences. If Noah doesn't obey, really big consequences. 
But on a smaller, more personal, intimate level, if you don't obey God, if I don't obey God, there's consequences in my marriage. There's consequences in my relationship with my kids. There's consequences in my testimony in my community. There are consequences when we don't obey God. And if we say, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple. There's a difference between saying, Lord, Lord, and being those who actually know the Lord and walk with him. There are plenty of people in the gospels who walked up to Jesus and said, I wanna follow you. And Jesus said, okay, do this. And they said, I'll do it later. Let me go and do this first. Let me go and do that first. You want me to give away my possessions? No, I don't wanna do that. Well, I wanna follow you, but first I'm gonna wait until my dad dies. And then we'll, you know, I don't know when that's gonna be. It's not, you know, gonna be for a while, but after that. And so we read those passages and we say, well, there's a big difference between the disciples, the 12, and those people who said they wanted to be disciples, but they didn't follow the Lord. They didn't obey the Lord. At one point, Peter turns to Jesus and he says, hey, look, we left everything to follow after you. And so we wanna be people of faith who obey. Verse six says, Noah was 600 years old when the flood came and water covered the earth. Noah was two thirds of the way through his life God uses people of all ages in all places for his glory. You're not too young, you're not too old, you're not too strong, you're not too weak for God to use. Verse seven, so Noah and his sons, his wife and his son's wives entered the ark because of the flood waters from the animals that are clean and from the animals that are not clean and from the birds and every creature that crawls on the ground, two of each male and female came to Noah and entered the ark just as God had commanded him. Seven days later, the flood waters came on the earth. In total, this family would be on the ark for 377 days. The 40 days and 40 nights is the number that sticks in our head. That's how long it was raining. They'll be on the ark for a year plus 12 days. In verse 13, it will seem like they entered the ark on the day the waters came. So, so what gives? Is it the week before or is it the day that the waters came? Well, obviously there would be a lot of in and out that final week, loading animals, loading supplies, personal effects, getting everything in final order. But also think about it this way. Noah was a real person. Of course, he's someone we, you know, if you grow up in the church, you learn about him right from the beginning. We sing about him. We see pictures of him with his beard and the ramp with the animals going up and all of that. He was a real, real person like you and me. You have unsaved family and friends, right? You have unsaved neighbors. If you knew that they were gonna die next Tuesday, wouldn't you find a moment to visit them just one more time and try to convince them that they could be saved? Noah's a man of faith. He believed that God was telling the truth. And though I'm sure he had those moments in his real humanity where he was like, I don't even know what rain is. I don't actually know what a boat is. I think this is a boat. But look, all these animals have come and he saw the faithfulness of God. He knew God was true. He knew that let God be true and every other man and every man a liar. And he, of course, had friends and family members. These were big families. We've seen that in these previous chapters. He knew people. He loved people. Wouldn't you go if you really knew that next Tuesday, everybody in your neighborhood is going to die? Everybody. Everybody at your workplace is going to die. Everybody. Everybody at your social club and your favorite restaurant, all those people are all gonna be dead next Tuesday. Wouldn't you go and speak to them one more time? I'm sure he did. 
Now, some commentators make a lot of the idea that the ark was proportioned like a huge coffin. I don't know, like every boat is shaped like a coffin. I don't know. I think that's taking a little too much license, but it does give us an analogy to think about for a moment. We know that Noah was a preacher. Peter tells us that. I'm sure that he was preaching right up to the moment he was closed into that big wooden box. As believers, we want our lives to be preaching to the very end. And I don't just mean the end of our mortal bodies, right? Or our mortal lives. There are times when you are going to make an exit from somewhere, from some group, when you move to a different city or when you leave your job or retire or when you graduate from school, you're gonna make an exit from that place. Find ways to proclaim the gospel, especially in those last days. A few weeks ago, we hosted a retirement ceremony for a lady who comes to the church here. She had served in the Navy for 20 years. And so they had the ceremony here. It was really great. It was a particularly great event because this faithful sister used that chance to proclaim the gospel to a group of people that she's probably not gonna see again. She was on her way out and on her way out, she wanted everybody to know, hey, let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about my savior. Let me tell you about what he can do for you. That's what we're talking about. This seven-day countdown also proves to us God's compassion. He had given the people of earth 120 years to repent, and nobody did, not one person. And now he provides yet another grace period, a final grace period before the end. And guess what? This isn't just a one-time thing that God did. He's gonna do that again when the, right before the whole world is gonna be judged. Only in the future, it's not gonna be seven short days. It's gonna be seven years. We're studying about it on Sunday mornings in the book of the Revelation, the grace of God's wrath as he's going out and proclaiming the gospel for those who will be saved. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open, the floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. There are a whole bunch of explanations for potential mechanics of how the flood worked. In the end, we can't be sure. We just, we weren't there, and we're having to look back scientifically and try to piece things together. Speaking of which, do you know that, you know, these shows like CSI and all, they're real popular and everything like that. A few years ago, the like Academy of Sciences came out and said, hey, most of this forensic science stuff is just trash. Like most of this is not really very scientific. Not, not, I'm not talking about what's on television, that especially. They're saying, hey, in, in real life criminal investigation, this forensic science is not as scientific as we want it to be. And so especially when we're looking back thousands of years and trying to figure out what happened, we have a lot of really good guesses and a lot of really smart guys, you know, turning the gears in their minds to figure out how this worked, but we just can't be sure. There's the vapor canopy model, the hydroplate model, the catastrophic plate tectonics model. It might've been a mixture of variance occurrences. I'm sure it probably was. Now it's interesting, the hydroplate model has pretty compelling evidence but it doesn't solve every issue or every question. No theory does. To get into it, I, I find it pretty fascinating. I encourage you to visit sites like Answers in Genesis and the Institute for Creation Research. Take a look at their articles, really cool stuff and diagrams and models and videos and stuff. But the hydroplate theory is pretty interesting. The theory is that about 10 miles below the Earth's surface, there was a shell of water surrounding the whole globe that was probably about a mile thick of water. 
and was under pressure. Remember, we, in, earlier in Genesis, it talked about how springs would come up to water the earth and come back down, and there would be this building pressure. And so some scientists have gotten together and have looked at this, and this one scientist in particular who's put this um, forward. But if the hydroplate theory is correct, the bursting of water that's talked about here in verses 11 and 12, it, the pressure would have been equivalent of 30 trillion hydrogen bombs exploding on the earth pretty much in a two-hour period. It would have been destruction on a level we've never even seen on a movie screen. I mean, this wasn't just a bunch of rain, right? And we've seen in the last few weeks the kind of destruction that just rain and wind can do, right? Hurricanes, or I saw in Western North Carolina, they got eight inches of rain in a couple day period and it cleared out homes, it cleared out trees, it killed some people, just some rain and some wind. It wasn't even like hurricane winds, it just, just a bunch of rain. We're not talking about a bunch of rain. We're talking about the crust of the earth like exploding. We're talking about a destruction that we can't even begin to fathom. Along with torrents of water shooting through the earth, magma and rock would be sent up into the atmosphere, probably breaking that vapor canopy, sending the you know, fountains of the heavens down, and, but that means rock and magma are also falling back down all over the earth. These scientists talk about how like volcanoes would just be going off all over the earth. I mean, it was huge destruction. Commentators point out that the proportions of the ark are nautically ideal, that because of the way it was laid out, it could be brought to almost a 90 degree angle and still not capsize. It would still right itself. But it wasn't just that it was a really good design. God himself would have had to protect the ark from the falling dangers that were coming down on the earth, like he would later in the book of Exodus during the plague of hail, which fell on the Egyptians, but not on the land of Goshen. Like God will later in the future great tribulation as he provides miraculous protection for his 144,000 witnesses during that period of time. Verse 13, on that same day, Noah, along with his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth entered the ark along with Noah's wife and his three sons' wives. They entered it with all the wildlife according to their kinds, all livestock according to their kinds, all the creatures that crawl on the earth according to their kinds, every flying creature, all the birds and every winged creature according to their kinds, two of every creature that has the breath of life and it came to Noah and entered the ark. And those that entered, male and female of every creature, entered just as God had commanded him and then the Lord shut him in. Why is this account so belabored and repetitive? You know, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm too salty, but you read it, I'm like, yeah, we know they all went in there, right? It keeps being very repetitive. God obviously wants us to understand some things. First of all, he wants us to understand that this was a true and literal event. This really happened. Here are the specifics. Here's the day it happened. Here's who was in there. Very specific. It's also the end of one era of human history and the beginning of a new era, a new era with a whole new world whose geology demands understanding. Peter says in his letter that when the flood came, that world before the flood, theologians call it the antediluvian world, Peter says that world perished, it's gone. Everything was different. All of the geography, all of the world systems of how things work, completely different. 
But on a devotional level, we also recognize that this text is so serious and so solemn for this reason. We should realize, read it and realize how serious God really is about sin. It's not a joke to him. It's not a small thing to him. At the same time, he is also serious about saving people, saving sinners. He will not fail to save. He always makes a way for those who are willing to receive his salvation. We're told that the Lord shut Noah in. Pastor Adrian Rogers points out that God did not pull Noah aside and say, okay, here's what I want you to do. You're gonna make this ark for the animals and you're gonna put a little peg on the side of the outer wall of the ark. In fact, you're gonna make eight of these pegs and you and your family, when it's time, you're gonna hang on to those pegs and as long as you hang on, you're gonna be safe. You're welcome, I saved you. That's not what happened at all. God shut them in securely. Nothing was gonna happen to these people. They were safe and sound in the ark. You don't work to get your salvation and you don't work to maintain your salvation. God is the author and the finisher of your faith. He holds you in his hand. That doesn't mean we have no responsibilities. Of course we have responsibilities. God is our king and he has commands, that's obvious. We're to walk with him, we're to obey him. That's clear from Noah's life but you don't work to keep your salvation any more than Noah worked to keep himself in the ark because the ark is Jesus Christ and we are secure in that salvation. In that moment when the Lord closed the door, I find no reason to believe that it wasn't a, a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ who we would call the angel of the Lord. Someone came and closed the door and I imagine Noah might've said, Lord, can't you come in here with us? How about you take a, a ride with us tour too? I'd rather have the angel of the Lord be in the boat with me, wouldn't you? But it's clear that God was with Noah. He was watching Noah. He looked deep into his heart. He knew his heart. He spoke to Noah. He helped him obey. He brought the animals. God knew Noah's family. He cared for them. And that proves to us that God is with you and I in every storm and every hurt and every struggle and every valley. He will never, ever leave you or forsake you. Verse 17 the flood continued for 40 days on the earth. The water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water surged and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. Then the water surged even higher on the earth and all the high mountains under the whole sky were covered. The mountains were covered as the water surged about above them more than 20 feet. As I said, everything about the earth's geography changed after the flood. Some scientists speculate that the highest mountains were maybe only five or 6,000 feet, not the you know, tens of thousands like Everest. The ark was 45 feet high, meaning that as it floated, due to the laws of buoyancy, half of it would be submerged in water, which means that if the water wasn't at least 20 feet or so higher than the highest mountain peak, the ark would run aground or could run aground. And so we see here that in wrath, God remembers mercy. He is always thoughtful of his people at all times. Even the volume of water here speaks to us of God's tender care. I remember that scene in Captain America Civil War where they're trying to do this thing and save this person and, and the Scarlet Witch, she's doing her whatever thing and she can't really handle everything and blows up this building and a bunch of people die. That's not how God does salvation. God keeps everything in mind. And so even with the volume of water, he said, we know God is so wise and so caring and so thoughtful of what his people are going through that he says, well, the water will have to be at least 20 feet above the highest peak so that the ark doesn't bottom out until it's time for them to come out because otherwise they would be unsafe in the waves. Verse 21, every creature perished. 
those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawled, to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him in the ark, and the water surged on the earth for 150 days. Only those eight believers were saved. No second boat. Tubal Cain didn't secretly sneak onto the ark like in that ridiculous Russell Crowe movie. In the coming wrath that is coming once again to the world, only those who believe on Jesus Christ will be saved. There is no other way out. The dramatic action of God in Noah's day and in the yet future tribulation prove that you are not an accident. You are created by God for a purpose. That purpose is to be loved by him, to be cleansed of your sins so that you might walk with him and be in communion with him. The way out of death and into this incredible life with God has always been the same in every age. Believe God, believe his word, turn from the ruin of sin and instead embrace him, walk with him. Walk with him now so that one day you will arrive at your eternal home where righteousness dwells. How many weeks do we have left to live before we are delivered through the storm of death onto the shores of eternity? We don't know, but we can wait and work with urgency and continual faithfulness based on God's reliable promise, knowing he's ready to use us even to the last minute.